Welcome to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast. Four conversations from Book Week Scotland on the themes of reading, childhood, language and home. This is a conversation about childhood. Welcome from me, Tom Powell, here to introduce you to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast from Scottish Book Trust. In conversation are Catherine Simpson, author of the acclaimed memoir, When I Had a Little Sister, The Story of a Farming Family That Never Spoke, and Mara Menzies, the popular Kenyan Scottish storyteller and performer whose blood and gold was one of the hits of the Edinburgh Fringe. My father never read a book until I wrote one when I was 50 and I wouldn't have written it in the way I had if I'd realised he was going to start his reading career then because there was some sex in it. But my mother did read books. She read uh, yoga books, cookery books and things like that. But she called fiction med up stuff and said, what do you read that for? Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. My, my family, we had uh, we did come from a, a reading culture. I think my father, we always used to have National Geographic magazines everywhere. And uh, my father introduced me to an awful lot of books. My mother le- read less, but there were always newspapers in the house. Uh-huh. So we did have a lot of, uh, of re- reading material around. And did they discuss it with you? Did they talk about what they were reading? I, I don't remember conversations about books. Um, I think it was when I sort of started reading the fairy tales, then um, we would start telling stories. And my mother was a great storyteller. Um, but we never actually discussed any of their books. No. And where, where, how did she tell you stories? Was that around the, you know, sitting in front of the fire or at bedtime or over the table? How did that work? Well, around the fire. I grew up in Kenya actually. <laughs> so it's very warm. And I actually grew up in quite a rural part of Kenya. And um, so we had, we didn't have a television. And so I do come from a storytelling background. So my mother would tell us stories and my grandmother would tell us stories. And so I just grew up listening to stories all the time and little songs and um, yeah, in the evenings. And uh, I think I'll tell a little story. Um and this is, a, it's a creation story. So from the very, very beginning of the world and God, when he first made the world, he was handing out the amount of time that each sentient being would have. So to the mighty baobab tree, he gave a thousand years. And to the tiny little fly, he gave just a few hours. And God handed out time after time until there were only four creatures left. There was the human being, there was the ox, there was the dog, and there was the monkey. And God summoned the human being. Human, your job is very important because you must keep the balance in the world. So the world will continuously evolve, but you must use your imagination, your creativity, and make sure the balance remains. You will have 30 years. And the human was very grateful. Thank you, God. And then God turned to the ox and he said, Ox, your job is also important because you must help the human. You see, the human is very smart, but the human is weak and lacks physical strength. So for those hard tasks, you must help. So you will have 30 years. But the ox thought, what? 30 years of hard labor? Nope, it's not for me. Please, God, I beg you. I just want 10. And God loved his creatures. And so he agreed. But the human, being a human, spotted an opportunity and asked God if he might have those extra 20 years. And God didn't see a problem, so handed them over. 
And then God turned to the dog and said, dog, your job is also important because you must also help the human. You see, the human will work very, very hard during the day and must sleep at night. So you will stay awake and keep the human safe. 30 years. But the dog thought, what? 30 years of sleepless nights? It's too much. Please, God, I beg you. I just want 10. And God agreed. And the human asked for dog's extra 20 years and received them. And then God turned to the monkey and said, monkey, your job is also important because you must also help the human. You see, the human will sometimes have to make very difficult decisions and those decisions will weigh heavily on the human soul. So you must entertain the human, make the human laugh, alleviate that burden, 30 years. But the monkey thought, no, 30 years of of being funny? It's not much fun at all. Please, God, I beg you, I just want 10 And God agreed. And again, the human asked for monkeys extra 20 years. And so there are some people who still believe that your first 30 years are your true human years, where you have to use your creativity, your imagination, innovate, experiment. But then you move into your ox years where you work hard. Then you're into your dog years where sleepless nights, worrying about the future of your children. And if you're lucky enough to reach your monkey years, then hopefully you will have gathered enough stories to entertain the people around you. Oh, that's wonderful. What a wonderful story. I think I might be going into my dog years, Ooh. which sounds brilliant. Actually. It sounds much better than the ox years. Sleepless nights? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> so when did you first hear that story? I actually heard that story um, as an adult. I heard it from a storyteller from Thailand. Her name was Wayupa Tosa. And I think part of this journey of becoming a storyteller, inspired by the stories that I heard from my parents um, and my grandparents when I was younger, has allowed me to experience stories from all over the world from so many different storytellers so it's quite a quite a privilege yeah and do you find that the same stories seem to um recur again and again i think what's interesting is that we find stories that um occur in different places and there are similarities so you'll have a story from india that actually is quite similar to a a scottish story it's just the details in the story change but the essence stays the same and and you shared these stories as children around with your grandparents and parents yes absolutely yeah i think stories just need to be shared yeah, I mean, did, you, did you come from a storytelling? No, not, not at all, not at all. It was, it's actually hard to think of a more different childhood than yours because we did have a television and I was brought up in the 1970s when the television was never switched off. So we used that as entertainment constantly. And um, so the adults were out working and the children were sitting watching the television. And then when we all ate together, which we did because I was brought up in a farmhouse, there was no conversation around the table as such. It was about, there was, there was talk about what was happening on the farm, um, and that was adult talk, and there was no real, not much cross-generational talk at all. There was no, I never learnt the art of conversation um, around, in fact, well, shall I read, shall I read you a page? From I'd love book? to hear some, yeah. When I was growing up, conversation was not part of our lives. Indeed, I don't think we ever had a talk about feelings of any kind, And this never changed throughout our lives with all our bereavements, ill health, triumphs and disappointments. And even during my mother's terminal illness, we never had a conversation about how we felt. As children, the main topic of conversation around the kitchen table was the weather, what the sunshine would allow to to happen on the farm today or what the rain would prevent. If the adults weren't talking about the weather, they were talking about the light. Nights are drawing in or... This time last week it were dark. 
So conversations about feelings or emotions or worries about anything other than practical things did not happen. Instead, there were remarks about events on the farm, which of course did cover birth, death and sex, although without any emotional content. Chatting was not a concept I was familiar with until I began to visit other families, where I realised, fascinated, that they asked questions and other people answered. Oh my God. So that sounds very different from your... Completely different, yeah. Um, But also interesting that other families around you were having those conversations, so it wasn't a social, it wasn't a cultural thing. Well, I think partly um, far- farmers do have this reputation of being quite taciturn. You know, they talk about practicalities and not emotions. And um, until I went to secondary school, I mixed with other farmers and farming families because I come from a big family and they're all farmers. So it was when I went to secondary school when I was 11 that I began to mix with other different kinds of families. And that's when I realised that adults and children sometimes had conversations because we had this there's a Lancashire phrase little pigs have big ears which means you're a child and you shouldn't be joining in this conversation so if you did try to join in a conversation it would be a stop interrupting we are talking mm-hmm. you know so it was a bit it was like you know don't don't join in because this is not for you I suppose it's that saying, like, children should be seen and not exactly. heard. Exactly, that was yeah. exactly the... So that wasn't... Is that a thing that happens where you come from? Children should be seen and not heard? It depends in, in some places. Um, so I go back to Kenya quite regularly, and um, there's a little village that where my grandmother used to live, and I notice it now that it's quite an authoritarian um, way of parenting, where the parents speak to the children and quite demanding, do this, go mm. there, fetch this, look after these children, whatever. But my family, we, we weren't like that. I think we, we often hosted dinners, so people would come over to the house, and, so, and we would be sitting around the dinner table, and so conversations would happen all the time and even though sometimes those conversations we maybe didn't really understand what was going on because it was my parents friends would come over and if they didn't have children then they would be speaking about adult things but I suppose similar to you you know you're listening in anyway and when it's boring you zone out and you just engage with conversation with the other kids but a lot of the time we would listen. Were your opinions solicited by by adults or were they interested in your in your opinions as a child yes i my my parents we would we are they would always ask us for our opinion and we would often i've got two sisters um and we would often put on shows for our parents as well so we would rehearse the whole day and get dressed up and and act out these wonderful stories so i mean it was certainly something that was encouraged um, right. And I, and I, yeah. So. I mean, we used to do that as well. We used to put on amazing shows, but the adult, I mean, this was for ourselves, you know, for, for me and my two sisters, I was one of the three sisters. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to do all that sort of thing, but it was very much a child's world that the adults didn't particularly enter. And it's interesting because my children now are 24 and 21. I've got two daughters and we always have conversations. So it's not as if the um, habits of childhood have stayed with me at all, because I, we chat all the time around the table. Uh, that's one of the best things about going on holiday, my children still come with me on holiday, yeah. is that we talk all the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I have a really, really good relationship with them because we chat so much about life and everything. Do you think that's a conscious decision of yours to not to have a family that's not like your childhood I think it is partly conscious yeah I think it's partly a conscious decision but then I happen to have bred two extremely opinionated girls <laughs> which is great I love it so mm-hmm. um, you know I think that makes them into uh, much more self-confident young women and yeah. I'm really glad that they feel that they do have a voice because I didn't feel that I had really a voice until I started writing when I was 45 wow 
And, and I, did, I got published when I was 50, so that's when I really felt, you know, when I was supposed to be becoming invisible as a woman, mm-hmm. as we're always constantly being told, I actually at that point felt that I had a voice and could, and could speak. I mean, when did you start actually storytelling? Um, well, I, I didn't actually realise that storytelling was a thing. I became a storyteller quite by accident, actually. Um, and um, so a little journey, so you, to give you some context, um, we moved from Kenya to Scotland when I was 13. And so I had all my storytelling childhood. And then when we came to Scotland, suddenly we had TV and we had Home and Away and Neighbours. And so the storytelling stopped um, because it was replaced with something else. But I didn't realize that it had stopped. And it was when I was 29 and I had my first daughter, Um, And I wanted her to identify with her African heritage. And so I thought, right, best way to do that is through stories. And so I was looking for books uh, with these Kenyan stories that I was familiar with. And I couldn't really find any. So I thought, well, I know loads of stories. I'm going to write a book for this kid who's on the way. So I did. And I found an illustrator. And I set up a publishing company. And I printed a thousand copies. And then my friends and family, they all bought a copy and I still had 900 (laughs) something left. So I thought, oh no, I have to sell these books. So then I would hire out halls and community centers and tell the story in the hope that people would buy this book. And it was through that process that, you know, you see the little kids' faces and the story would always be different. I wouldn't read from the book. I would just tell the story. So it was always changing. And then somebody introduced me to the storytelling center. So I came and then I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, storytelling is this thing. So that was how I became a storyteller. So your daughter's really lucky that she's got a, a storyteller <laughs> as a mother. Do you test your stories out on your children and see what oh, yes. reaction you get? <laughs> yes, all the time. There, And I've got two children. I've got a um, 12-year-old daughter now and I have a son who is five. And I think that age gap keeps me on mm-hmm. my toes a little bit because you're constantly having to sort of change the types of stories as well. And they inspire each other. They inspire me as well when I'm creating new stories. This first book that I had uh, created for my daughter, I think, you know, I was always very keen that she would have a reading culture as well. Yeah, well, I was always absolutely terrified of, run- of running out of books because I was uh, in a house that didn't have books in it except for a full set of the famous fives, which I slowly put together. And we were too far away from the library for me to walk to the library because I was out in the middle of the countryside. So um, I used to read the famous five over and over and over again and other Eni Blyton books as well. And um, and then get, you know begged to be taken to the library. I loved the library, um, but I had no guidance in what to choose. I've got a little bit from my uh, book when I had a little sister on this very subject. I'll just read it for you. Books were my escape from a world with the wrong kind of drama in it. I hungered for stories and books to make reality fall away. I read to find circuses, wild animals, long dresses, castles, enchanted forests, and magic faraway trees. Re-entering real life after being lost in a book was painful and disorientating. At the table, I read the back of the cereal packet. I read the primary school library over and over again. I read the set text Elizabeth, my big sister, brought home from secondary school. I read the Radio Times. When I ran out of stories, I read the dictionary. I chose books from Garstang Library, purely on covers and titles. I read the entire works of P.G. Woodhouse and Agatha Christie, fascinated by their versions of English country houses. I read everything Catherine Cookson wrote and pronounced whore with a W. 
<laughs> I think the point there is that a lot of the words that I learned, I learned through books and not through yeah. talking, which is one of those things that you can tell people who've read a lot mm-hmm. uh, because they mispronounce words. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I loved listening to that, actually, because I did the same thing. I would just scour the world for, for words. And so I would also read the serial packets and yeah. dictionaries and anywhere that there was anything to be read. I was I was there. And did you compile your own dictionary? I, I compiled my own dictionary of words that I came across in books. Um, you know, it was like tippet, shawl, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, stucco, plaster. I was obviously reading yeah. like a Georgette Heyer or something at this mm-hmm. point. So I've still got the old dictionaries. I was so, um, I loved learning new things from books. Mm-hmm. I think I've learned far more from books in my lifetime than I ever have from a classroom. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, I think I really missed and I didn't realize I missed were books um, about about Kenyan Kenyan culture. Um, I mean, I think it doesn't, you know, African, uh, we don't have a strong uh, literary tradition in, in Africa or certainly when I was growing up, it was very, very difficult to find books that sort of featured um, life that we were living, that we were experiencing. And so a lot of um, the literature that I was exposed to was of British life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I think that is quite consistent actually across any of the colonized countries, mm-hmm. I suppose. And so that certainly plays a, a part in your um, conceiving of the world and your world perception and your worldview. And and I think it's still a problem to this day, actually, certainly for um, the exposure for children to look into other worlds. It's very, very difficult to find books that introduce them to an African culture that isn't particularly awful or miserable or war or poverty and I think that's still a problem to this day and um, yeah but it was very very difficult to find books yeah I'm sure it was because I mean even being brought up in England I ended up reading to escape really Um, I didn't I certainly didn't find myself in books I didn't find the place out you know I didn't find my culture in books I was reading books about children with nannies and nurseries which to me seemed quite normal to read about children like that. It never struck me that I wasn't reading about children on farms in Lancashire. It, it, it never struck me that I should be. But if I had have found myself in a book, what an amazing thing that would have been. Yeah, I think so. And But I think one of the things that I loved about the books that I did read was they also conjured up mysteries as well. So, for example, if I was reading a book about um, winter and, the you know, these children were building these snow people mm. and igloos, then suddenly I would, you know, I would wonder what that was like because, you know, I lived at the Kenyan coast, so it's... 28 degrees year round so we would never have snow so I had to imagine what that was like and I think that certainly has fed into this you know these escapisms these magical worlds that I create even now as an adult yeah 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 yeah. we we used to try and recreate the world of the famous five to what we could and we used to set off with the horse and the dogs around the the village lanes thinking that we were going to meet some baddie and we'd be looking but I think it might have been an Enid Blyton type of baddie when I think about it, which was basically any stranger in the village, you know, would have been seen as a baddie, but we never found one. It was most frustrating. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what I liked about the Annie Blyton books was that the, they set off without the adults. Yes. Well, like any children's stories, really, you can't have too many adults in or it isn't, it isn't a children's story. But my other favourite book when I was growing up was Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. Is that a book yes, that you Yes, I did read Wuthering yeah. Heights, yeah. Well, I read that when I was 11 because my mother told me it was a ghost story. 
And I was obsessed with ghosts. Mm -hmm. I was always looking for ghosts. And uh, so my mother told me it was a ghost story. So I I sat and ploughed my way through Wuthering Heights, absolutely fascinated by it. Because, of course, it was in the north of England, mainly in a kitchen, which, you know, I spent most of my life in the northern kitchen. And the the girl, the main um, character was Cathy. And I was Catherine. So from that day forward, I became Cathy for about 20 years. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I actually adopted her name because I couldn't think of anything better than being Cathy. Quite why, I don't know, but she did break somebody's heart, so maybe that's why. Maybe that's why, yeah. Tom Powell here again, only for a minute, to remind you that Scottish Book Trust believes books, reading and writing have the power to change lives. A love of reading inspires creativity, improves employment opportunities, mental health and well-being, and is one of the most effective ways to help break the poverty cycle. If you believe books have the power to change lives, why not become a regular giver to Scottish Book Trust at scottishbooktrust.com donate. Now, back to the Book Week Scotland conversation featuring Catherine Simpson and Mara Menzies on the theme of conversation and childhood. think that your storytelling now is a way of exploring your childhood the childhood in which you didn't find yourself represented I've been doing the storytelling now for um, 12 13 years and I think at the beginning there was certainly something about um, portraying an alternative perspective of African peoples and African cultures um, that was lacking because I never saw it in in, in Scotland in, in where I lived and um, and I wanted my children to be able to to understand that but also the people that they would be mixing with so the children around them so that was certainly a huge inspiration when I first started and something that continues to this day um, and I also remember a lot of the stories that I was told and they do feed into the creation of new stories um, whether those stories are stories for children or whether they're stories like the blood and gold which was more it was older an older audience mm-hmm. um, but certainly reaching into those kind of uh, mythical worlds and and finding these ideas and bringing them into into a new space a different space um, so I have been inspired by the stories that I heard representing this uh, this Kenyan culture, this African culture. Um, but I find that I'm also hugely inspired by my Scottish upbringing, which was my teens, and how that has also added elements to, you know, to my world. And I and I think by fusing these two, then you create this this other space. Um, but very very proud of belonging to really rich oral traditions. I think in my case, um, I've written a memoir. Uh, when I had a little sister and I didn't realize it when I was writing it but I think what I was doing was recreate no that's sorry that's the wrong word I wasn't recreating I was trying to work out what had happened the book is actually about the death by suicide of my sister and in exploring that I went right back to our childhood trying to work out what had happened why we were the family that we were And in doing so, it was an extremely powerful thing for me to do because I think I'd felt very powerless as a child, Um, like I had no voice. And in putting down all these experiences, both happy and sad, of being raised in this way, um, it gave me 
it, it gave me power over those memories and made me understand the dynamic of the family much more than I ever had before. And, and, it, and it obviously, and I thought that our family were absolutely unique in their... Um, I mean, the subtitle of my book is The Story of a Farming Family Who Never Spoke. And I thought that we were unique in that way. But I've been absolutely amazed by the reaction I've had to the book where people have got in touch with me, people I've never met, obviously, saying, that was my family. That was my mother. That was my, that was my relationship uh, with, with my siblings. And I did feel uh, very alone. And to know that other people have read that and then think that, they, that it makes them feel less alone makes me feel great. It makes me feel like, oh, it was a good thing to write this book because I, I have had doubts about you know, exposing my memories and my family to um, publication. And it's a great feeling that um, I'm hopefully reaching out to other people who maybe haven't found themselves represented in, in books before. Was this when you, when you were... What inspired you to actually write the book? Well, when my sister died, um, I, somebody said to me, oh, you'll write about this. You're a writer, you'll write about it. And I thought, absolutely no way. I wouldn't know where to start. I can't write about it. But then when my sister had been dead two and a half years, um, I, got the, I, I built up the courage to read her diaries. She'd left diaries from when she was 14 to when she was 46. And, and in reading the diaries, I realised I needed to tell her story. Um, so that's when I actually wrote, I wrote the book. Uh, and it's now five and a half years since she died and the book came out this year. And I really was terrified of doing it because I thought, you know, she's not here to ask. She's not here. I can't get her permission to tell her story. You know, I'm not only telling my story, I'm telling my family story. Is that an infringement of their privacy? Should I, have I got the right to do that? And I really had to do quite a lot of soul searching. But I think the reaction to the book has confirmed to me that I did the right thing in telling the story. And I do feel that Trisha, my sister, was such a compassionate, lovely person that she would, uh, she would support me in helping other people. And she would be really glad that her story and her suffering, because she did suffer for very many years, that her suffering can help other people and other families. And I think she, she would support me. I feel that very much. When you're talking about the diaries that she kept from 14 to 46, were her memories similar to yours or what was was there a difference there was some it was really odd because this is why I was terrified of reading her diaries because I didn't know if her story would reflect my memories at all you know I thought that she may blame me for her suffering she may blame the family for her suffering uh, there may be page after page of depression wasn't I discovered joy in her words I discovered that actually she'd had far more adventures and things and happiness than I realized um because I've, obviously I've been a self-absorbed teenager myself for part of the time. So it was actually wonderful to discover that there was joy in her life that I didn't know about. And she wanted to be a writer, so I published some of her words in my book and I made sure that they were her exact words in quotes. So she's now a published writer. It was a quite an experience, though, reading a whole lifetime of diaries of somebody whose life you thought you knew. And in fact, you don't know them as well as you think you do. Yeah, so it's been absolutely amazing, the response that I've had from people, you know, um, getting in touch with me from all over the world, which is obviously going to be a really different situation for you because your audience is right there in the room with you. Yes, um, and I think that's one of the really powerful things about storytelling. Um, I, I wanna, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Blood and Gold, which was the show I did, and it was, it was looking at the legacy of colonialism and slavery 
um, but through myth and legend and fantasy. So I'd created, I'd drawn, um, drawn from my personal story of my, my mother's journey of coming to Scotland, um, from events that have happened in Scotland. So there was the racist murder of a Somali student in the grass market about 30 years ago, and nobody was ever brought to justice for it. So it was bringing together a whole load of these stories, but creating it in this fictitious way. And um, the whole idea behind that is that I, I, when I see a story, I don't like stories that give you the message, you know, the moral of the story is, because growing up in Kenya, a lot of the stories that you get in school reading is that there was the message at the end of it. And I always feel that people will get different messages from the same story because we're all going through um, different times. We've had different experiences. And so there's threads that will connect people in different ways. So it was framed um, from a relationship between a mother, a dying mother and her daughter. And then the mother places all these stories in a box. And then when the girl opens the box and these stories come out. Um, and there was, you know, there was a woman who came quite a few times, actually. I thought I should charge for therapy. But um, yeah, no, there's a woman who came at the end of the show and she was absolutely in tears the whole way through and it's not a very, it's not a hugely miserable show despite the context of you know it was but she when the mother dies she told me that she had lost her mother a year ago and so that was the thing that got her so every at various points throughout the show she was hit with something and that was the thing that can you know that was the thing that got her and to other people um they would connect to it in, in different ways so for example there was i'd created this the land in the sky and there was this young man who was trying to climb this rope to get to the land in the sky and for me when i was creating it, it was looking at the obstacles um, in terms of immigration for people who are trying to get to you know the promised land or these this wonderful place and the various obstacles that they have and people who have been through that journey well they got it instantly and then other people who have never experienced any issues with getting to a place well it was just a rope that led to the land in the sky so people would respond uh wonderfully just very personally come up to me and said that got me or I really loved this bit and I think the the feedback that we got on social media as well people mm. would make the comments and you know I really loved this bit and so yeah it's it's really important to get that feedback so have you been driven in your desire to tell stories by your lack of uh, finding yourself in stories when you were a child or finding a lack of the colonialism uh, stories etc I think for me, growing up in Scotland, there are a lot of stories that we never hear about or it's not spoken about very often. Um, and that is because in terms of slavery, Scotland has quite a complicated relationship with slavery. And uh, we see the legacy of colonialism and slavery time and time again. And, and certainly with, with Blood and Gold, what I was looking at there is that if, in terms of like racism, for example, you know, for colonialism and slavery to work, you need to portray black people as subhuman um, in, in order to justify the treatment of human beings. Um, and of course, this is something that is not comfortable for people to discuss. And so it has, but it has to be discussed because people are still living with the consequences of that, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, and so through stories, I think this was my way of of presenting it in, in a different way, in an alternative way. And so I absolutely find myself missing out on these stories from my childhood. And yes, they feed into, into the stories and the, that I create now that, I, um, that I'm interested in, in letting people know about. Because sometimes people, they just simply don't know or it's difficult to access these stories and we need to find different ways, different channels to have these stories heard.
you know, it's that connection because people will relate to it in some small way. And I think when the content is so, so vast, people are going to make those connections. So you could have that book and it, you know, people will, it will, something will resonate in so many different ways. And so they do feel that you are, have experienced something very, very similar to to them as yes, well. Yes, I think that's right. I did a, a talk recently and I could see about four or five different people crying in the audience. But at the same time, the book has got funny things in it as well. So they're also laughing. So it's quite strange. How, how, do you, uh, how can you tell how the audience is responding to your stories? I mean, we're such a polite culture. Do they not <laughs> sit there silently or do they respond? You know, how do they respond? Uh, oh, you know, the audiences, if you have an audience who are used to storytelling, um, it's it's wonderful because there there are expectations because I think with storytelling, it's never going to be the same twice because the audience are essential to the telling of the story. And when the audience come in or when you first meet them, there's a little bit of engagement with them to just suss out, you know, how, what is the mood in the room? Um, and that absolutely changes the telling, how you would tell the story. Um, and with the storytelling, because you can ask them questions and then you just deal with the questions, um, you just find ways to make the audience work. And there's been times when you'll get audiences who are, you know, they'll, they might close their eyes and that's quite off-putting mm. because you think, oh no, are they bored? Are they asleep? But they're not. They're actually just listening to it. And sometimes the, you know, the visual, the, the imagination just takes over. So actually watching somebody can be quite distracting. Whereas if you close your eyes and just listen to the words, then you can find yourself led off and taken into mm. another place. And there is something very, very magical about, you know, once upon a time because it hits people, you know, it takes them back into their childhood. It takes them back to a place where, you know, there's, they are familiar with stories. So a long time ago, there was once all of these, they're very, very magical words. I just, yeah, when people come to you and after they've read the book and they're asking you questions, you know, what, what would you say to them about childhood in general? I, I, you know, I do say that uh, it's impossible to know whether our story could have ended differently because we can't relive our childhoods again. But I do feel sad that we didn't talk as, as children because I feel that um, it can only do good to talk um, adult to child, to encourage people to talk about their feelings, to, to read books together so that you then can talk about the issues and themes in the books we never had that kind of thing um to share to share stories because then you can bring you know a child's eye view and an adult's eye view together so now i feel that we have i have conversation with my children all the time and all the time they were growing up we did and i felt as an adult i was learning more from them than they were from me and i still feel that that is the case they constantly teach me about the world and i feel really sad that I didn't, that my family weren't like that. And I don't mean to keep criticising my my family. They were of the time and place. But I feel that adults now, parents now, have a much more joyful and rewarding um, experience of parenting 
because of this shared conversation that we can have between generations that wasn't really a thing when I was growing up. I think intergenerational conversation is so important. Um, my mother told me uh, a story about my grandfather and my grandmother, and she t- and it was a, such a profound story. It was he was basically a feminist, you know, a, a, a feminist um, who encouraged his daughters to learn how to read at a time and a culture where women would become mothers and wives, and that was it. And when she told me this story, it really changed how I saw my entire family history because I never knew my grandfather I knew my grandmother but it made me realize how amazing what an amazing family that I come from and if she had never told me that story then I would never I would never know and I wouldn't have the pride in my family that I do have mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's really important that we we do continue to have these conversations and just speaking gives us so much. And, you know, one of the things that I, I notice in schools as well and something that um, that I feel just needs to happen more often is that a lot of the time teachers are not confident about uh, telling stories. So there's a lot of reading stories in, in schools and particularly with really young children as well. I, I feel that if you're if you're reading the story to them, the, the teachers will often sit there with a big book and then these wonderful pictures. And But I, I feel that that, gets rid of a lot of imagination as well because if you say there was once a girl and she lived in a forest and she met a dragon if the pictures are there then immediately this is what the girl looks Mm -hmm. like this is what the forest looks like this is what the dragon looks like whereas if you just told a story without any book any prop any anything then you've suddenly got a classroom of 30 children with 30 different versions of this girl 30 different versions of a forest and of a dragon Mm. Um, and so it's really important to just tell stories without Um, necessarily needing other uh, things to help us tell the story. So in whether it's families, whether it's schools, we just need to be telling stories a lot more often, bring back the traditional Kaylee <laughs> situation where we just yeah. sit and everyone sings a song or and tells en- a story. And encouraging a response, I think, from children. Because yes. I, I read a quote the other day that said, conversation is an escape route. And I really think that that is, the tr- that is true. I feel that when I look at the cover of my book with a photograph of me on it, age seven, there was so much feeling and conversation just waiting to come out of that child that never, never did. And um, I, th- I think it's really sad because I think that talking is a way of escaping from fear that you're holding inside of yourself. It's a way of learning about the world. It's a way of finding reassurance about the world. It's a way of finding, you know, security. And if you're not encouraged to express yourself as a child and if you're not allowed to, you know, tell stories or question stories, you don't have a way of learning because you're just left in a position of fear. I think absolutely giving opinions is is really important, really important. And I think without the conversations that we have around the table or then we just never learn how to give our opinions in a really clear and articulate way. It's been fantastic to talk to you, Mara. I mean, we come from totally different backgrounds, but we have so much in common, which we found out by chatting today. And it's been a total, total pleasure. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I, I love that we both have, we're two, two siblings as well. We had like come from a families of three girls as That's well. Right, so yeah. yeah, a lot of similarities and a we wouldn't have had without this conversation. So absolutely. I've loved it. Me too. Thank, Thank you. you. Little pigs have big ears. Funny 
how these sayings stay with you. Of course, attitudes don't have to be enshrined in sayings to affect you. The conversation you've just been listening to is about how childhood can drive you for completely different reasons to tell stories or to write, to re-find yourself and your childhood or to work out what happened long after it has passed. And if you tell your story with honesty and empathy, it will reach out to others, people utterly different from you. And it can reach back to the child you were, the one who was full of stories but had no one who would listen, the one who revels in her children's responses and conversation. Just before I go, I wonder if you noticed a mother's and sister's theme running through the conversation. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to A Conversation About Childhood, part of A Year of Conversation, featuring Catherine Simpson and Mara Menzies. The show was directed by Tom Pow and produced by Ewan Spence. A Conversation About Childhood is a Spence Media production commissioned for Book Week Scotland by Scottish Book Trust. <laughs>